Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. So we find ourselves tonight at the uh, second part of a two-part story. Uh, two parts in a lot of ways. Uh, we, uh, the passage is found at the end of Second Samuel, the first part of First Samuel, and then the second part of Second Samuel. So you have uh, two stories uh, tied together, but also you find yourselves, Second uh, Samuel chapter 24, is, uh, as we've broken it up into two sections here, and we ended last, uh, last week with uh, David falling and saying that he's in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for the mer- his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. That it all began uh, with the anger of the Lord being kindled. Um, this, uh, what I call a prideful census of what David is seeking to be able to number the people of Israel, that he might be able to get great joy from knowing how many people are in his midst. As First uh, Chronicles chapter twenty-one explains, that that Satan incited David to number the people. And uh, before we begin with Second uh, Samuel chapter 24, I want to uh, tell you briefly of a, a short little story written by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, he's a famous author who wrote um, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Uh, but in this short little story, he writes about this uh, a man, an artist by the name of Niggle. And Niggle has this idea in his mind of trying to paint this perfect picture. And he spends his whole life trying to accomplish painting this picture. And in this picture, he sees and envisions this tree with so much detail. And in the back, the mountains with numerous, uh, uh, the sky and these mountains. But as he's trying to paint this tree, he's focused on the details of these leaves of this tree. But, but life continues to happen. He's constantly interrupted uh, and has other obligations, distractions. He, he spends his whole life trying to paint this picture. And as he continues, he becomes more anxious about trying to complete this uh, picture of this unfinished work because he has not a lot of time left. But eventually he, he passes away before this um, picture is completed. But in, in this afterlife, he discovers that he actually finds this tree that he was painting, that this tree that was in his imagination was finally a reality before him. He was able to see it, to be able to touch it, not just the t- tree, but the whole scene that he envisioned. And this story uh, paints this picture, it shows um, the creativity, the struggle to be able to achieve one's goals. Uh, but life is filled with distractions and limitations. And here we find somewhat of this picture yet incomplete. That David sought to be able to build a house for the Lord. He said, I want to build a house for the Lord. I am dwelling in a house of cedar, but I want to build a house for the Lord. And, and I'm sure he had in mind what this house would look like. And he has spent his whole life with this picture in mind, but life leak with, leaf with niggle, he is unable to complete it. What we see is um, that what we saw at the beginning 
in 1 Samuel, one commentator explains that 1 Samuel began with Israel's need for leadership that could save them from their enemies, themselves, and the wrath of God. 2 Samuel concludes with a promised kingdom still unrealized, that they still need this uh, Savior who would save them from their enemies, from themselves, and from the wrath of God. So tonight we see the Lord offering to the wrong king, the king offering to the right Lord, and the response of God ultimately, and we see God's people are saved through the offering of the king. We see four major characters in this uh, this scene, but one is hidden in the shadows. We'll be looking at the angel, Gad the prophet, Aruna the Jezebite, and David the king. We'll begin with uh, the angel's work for the Lord in verses 15 to 17. So the Lord set a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died from the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jezebite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. See, the irony in all of this situation, as we looked at last week, is that Ultimately, David wanted to be able to number the people, to be able to get an accurate figure of how many people dwelt in his kingdom. And we saw that this census, numbering the people, was something that brought him great joy. Why do you, as um, Joab said, why do you delight in this thing? And here the irony is that, uh, that ultimately it. David's punishment hits exactly what David's sin was trying to accomplish. In numbering the people now, he has less people to number. And Gad the prophet came to David and gave him those three options. Three years of famine, three months of enemies, or three days of pestilence. David turns and falls into the hand of the Lord and says that we would fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let us not fall into the hand of men. And all of this this scene builds and builds and builds from his numbering the people, the, the, the ten months or so of going from Dan to Beersheba and then uh, Gad coming to visit uh, D- David. And all of this builds until this one moment <clears throat> where the action stops. That the angel Lord had followed the, the path of which David had numbered the people from Dan to Beersheba, and, and now he stops in his tracks. The angel has sheathed his sword. David explains that he is the one that sins. So in all of this, we understand that David sees his sense of sin and guilt from all of this, although Satan incited him. It is David's sin, although um, 
the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel when he incited David against them. Um, that all of this, David is the one who realizes that his sin is the reason why his people are dying. He thinks of himself, and he thinks also of his sheep. Interestingly, that after all these years of being a king, he still thinks of himself as a shepherd with a flock to look after. And ultimately, he says in the end, let this hand be brought down upon me. So we have this problem here, this conflict in the text of what is going to happen. The angel is stationary now, about to strike on to Jerusalem. But then Gad enters once more, giving him three options in the scene before, but now he comes. And Gad comes to the king in verses 18 to 19. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jezebite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. So as Gad had now previously given him three options, now there's no options. There is one option before him. Warn the king about those three things, the three years of famine, the three months of fleeing, or three days of pestilence. But his solution is quite simple. Go up. Raise an altar on the threshing floor of Arona. And David does exactly as the Lord commanded. And as we find the scene continues to build, what will be happening to the angel of the Lord who is stationary? Striked, set to strike those in Jerusalem. And then we see a Lord offering to a king in verses 20 to 23. And when Arona looked down, he saw the king and his servant coming on towards him. And Arona went down and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arona said, Why has my lord the king come to this, his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arona said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arona gives to the king. And Arona said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. So he comes and he, Arona sees David coming now to be able to purchase this land. And Arona comes and worships and bows down, pays homage to the king with his face to the ground. And he comes to be able to worship, and he comes with an offer, the cattle, the equipment, the firewood. But he says, my lord, my king, what seems good in your eyes? So we need to ask the question, who is this Arona? He's a Jezebite king. In uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, the parallel passage, his name is Oren. So here he is in uh, Jerusalem. And this is uh, 30 years after King David has conquered the city of David. Uh, And many believe that Arana was the king that dwelt in this place before. And he was dwelling in there underneath the safety of David. 
or that he owned this land beforehand and David didn't throw him out. But this interchange between Adonah and King David echoes a similar conversation in Genesis chapter 23. When Abraham buys that lot of land for 400 shekels of silver from the Hittites, that here is a legal discussion, we might call it you know, a title now, but here is the legal discussion, that it cannot be refunded, that it is often used to be able to prove the ownership of a land years later, centuries later, that you can't go back and then change your mind later saying, I didn't accept that or didn't make that agreement. So here, Adonis wishes just to be able to say, I, you just take it. You make your offering, do whatever seems good to you, and hopefully the Lord will accept you. But now we see David, a king, offering to the Lord in verses 24 and 25. But the king said to Adonah, no. But I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God for that, that cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So here David comes in and he buys this land. Again, there's a legal document that you might say proves that he owns this lot of land now, this threshing floor from Arunah. But here he says that I will not offer to Lord my God that cost me nothing. And I think this is a great principle for us to be able to stop and ponder Think about that young rich ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Have you kept all the commandments? I've kept them from my youth. And then what does he say? Go and sell all that you have. For him, that cost was too high. For him to give up all of his possessions was too much to be a disciple of Christ. It was going to cost him something. And often we don't uh, ponder this enough that there is a great cost to giving up the world, to giving up sin. Now we say there's a cost of being a Christian, but when it's all said and done, the cost is low, if at all. We fear the offense, we fear the effects, we fear ultimately the cost that might come. But here, the huge part of this is that David understands and he says that I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. They cost me nothing. He understands that God is his and he is God's. That he, David, at the end of his life and his kingship, he still understands that he is a, a servant of God. Not just some God, not just a God, but my God. The God that I worship, the God who calls me by my name. The first commandment tells us that we should know and acknowledge God to be the holy true God and our God. 
Not just to know and acknowledge that he is God, but for us to be able to know and acknowledge him to be our God. And then to worship and to glorify him accordingly. This is why it's so important as we pray, we pray our Father. Not just a Father, but he is our Father who listens to his children. As David says that God is my refuge, my strength, my very present help in time of need, my shield. Or Thomas, as he saw the hands and the wounds of his Lord. He explains that my Lord and my God. But this is a contrast to what Arunah said when he says, you make an offering to your God. Arunah is not worshiping the true and living God. He's happy for David to do that. But here David does. He builds an altar here in this spot that he had purchased. And he worships Yahweh. He understands that he, in all of his might and his power, in the census that numbers all of this this, uh, effect, he has no ability to be able to divert this plague on his own. He understands that it's the the Lord God who is commanding the angel when to strike and when not to strike. It is God who commands the angel, it is enough, now stay your hand. And here David is powerful, one of the most powerful men in all the world at this time, and he is unable to do anything. And that is why he goes to be able to build an altar, to be able to sacrifice to the Lord. We've seen the angel Lord, we've seen Gad, we've seen Arona, we've seen David. But what about the one who's in the shadows? That you see God's response to the offering. And ultimately it points to Jesus' kingdom. In verse 25, it says that David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Here we see the Lord relented. The Lord responded to the plea. We see this in the provision, the mediator. The the beginning of chapter 24 begins with the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The end of the chapter says the Lord relented, responded to the plea. That God had promised wrath and judgment and he is right to be able to send this plague upon the people of Israel. He says that the the, the anger of the Lord was um, kindled against Israel. But here now he stopped the plague. The Lord relented his judgment and his wrath as he did with Aaron and the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. And after this, he promises, the promises of inheritance forever is mentioned in this passage. The same wording is used in Psalm 106, verse, four, verse 45. In the story of Jonah, when the Ninevites repent and they believe in God, the Ninevite king 
heard the message of Jonah, tore his clothes and placed sackcloth on. He says, when the God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. And here at the altar which is built in the the threshing floor of Arona, the Jezebite, is a well-known place. It is well-known to the people of the past and well-known to the people of the present whom 2 Samuel is written to. In the past, it's the location of where Abraham offered Isaac, Mount Moriah. And Abraham looking forward, a great and story where his son is spared for the lamb, that his offspring may be flourish. But also, this is the location in which the temple will be built by David's son Solomon. And many times offerings would be made for the sins of the people. Blood was shed on Mount Moriah from the ram instead of his son. Blood was shed this day by King David to spare the people of Israel. Years and years blood would be spilled by bulls and goats to be able to spare the people of Israel from the wrath of God. And here the the mount of provision, the mount the Lord will provide, and here we see this provision of now the place in which David's picture of the temple, the house that he wants to be able to build is coming into place. But we also see it's not the first time there's a plague that's sent. And the response from the plague that is sent is the, the offering, the blood. The plague sent, the tenth and final plague in Egypt. The death in the Passover where a lamb was sacrificed, blood was spilled, that it would avert and save the people of Israel. Not only that, the plague of Korah's rebellion. It was stopped, number 16. The leaders, Moses and Aaron, fall on their faces, build an altar, and the plague was stopped. The plague of Baal worship at Peor in Numbers 25. The Lord said, the Lord relented concerning this, it shall not be. And David said, I will not do this that cost me nothing. And you can already see the connections of how this is a shadow of what is to come in Christ. Where his blood is spilled and the plague is averted. Death, that final plague. The people of God are saved from the blood which is spilled. Christ, the head of the people, he made the offering and it cost him everything. 
that we might be able to be free. But I think one of the greatest pictures here in this passage is that what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 25 speaks of hitting pause. That there is wrath to come following 2 Samuel chapter 25, uh, 24. The Lord responded to the plea of the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This word here, that word averted, is used in Hebrew to be able to shut the heavens of rain for a time. It's spoken of of detaining someone in prison for a time. In Genesis chapter 16, it's it's the, the womb of Sarah. Or even the women of the house of Abimelech is shut for a time. That we need to understand that this plague which was coming towards the city of Jerusalem is not stopped altogether. It is enough. Stay your hand. The sword is put back in the sheath. But notice what David's promise is in verse 17. When he saw, he spoke to the Lord, when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. That here in the shadows we see the wrath is just averted for a time. The sword is put in the sheath, not forever. The wrath will be poured out on one of David's offspring. Against me and my father's house. that the blood of Jesus was shed. The wrath of God was poured out. As Matthew chapter 20 explains, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The one who had come It said, I would not do anything that cost me nothing. nothing. Not just even that cost me something, but it cost me everything. In Revelation nothing. chapter 14, verses 9 and 10, it says that the false worshipers also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. Or in Jeremiah chapter 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hands this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Here there's a great plague of death of the wrath of God being pulled out, poured out in full. It is coming. 
The sword will be released from its sheath, but for those who fall underneath the blood of Christ, who are his, this great plague is not of one of medical severity, but rather rather one of eternal significance. The plague of death will be poured out in full strength. And this wine is bitter, the justice is fair. It comes through our king and representative of Adam. We're all sinners like David. As God promised to Adam that you shall surely die. This is very true. As the author of Hebrews puts it, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. We, like David, have sinned. We have lied, cheated, stolen, coveted, killed our, in our hearts, filled with pride and jealousy. We have done wickedly, turned against God, seeking to puff ourselves up, to point to our deeds and say, look at our actions, but they mean nothing. We are not Gad the prophet. We are not Aaronah. We are not David. We are the people in Jerusalem. We need provision, we need the mediator, we need the offering, we need to be permanently rat, to be permanently satisfied, not just averted for a time, but completely paid in full. And this is found not in David, but in Christ. When Christ comes, and he says, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he falls down on his face and he prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you do. This cup of wrath which is poured out on Christ. There is only one king whose offering is pure and whose offering does not temporarily divert this wrath, but consumes the cup for all of his people. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he paid the price. He built the altar of his own body. He made the offering to God, which was, an a pleasing, which was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Not only taking away the wrath which is due to us, but also then giving us His righteousness. We are the ones who are affected by the plague, the ones who descended, who had descended to destruction. The ones whose the wage of death is owed to us. The ones... Unbeknown to us, that death is on our doorstep. But the blood was spilled, as the author of Hebrews puts again. Under law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. Or later, in chapter 10, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is the, the altar which David's son Solomon builds where time and time again the blood is spilled over and over and over. But when Christ had offered all time a single sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for a time until his enemies should be made the footstool footstool for his feet. For a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. 
for after saying. Here, did the bulls and goats merely just divert, avert the plague which is upon us? They cannot fully take away that plague of sin and pay the price. The blood cannot purify because their blood is not pure. But year after year, as you put earlier, the author of Hebrews, these sacrifices, there's a reminder every year of our sin, our, our payment which is due to our sin, but there's also a reminder that these bulls and goats cannot take away sins. And here at the close of 2 Samuel, we see that picture of like leaf by niggle. He finally sees that picture in which he had in his mind. The mountain in the background. It's greater than he imagined. And David, at the start of his kingship, sought to be able to make a house for the Lord. For the ark of the Lord to be able to dwell in and live in. But the kingdom of David could see was merely just like a leaf on a tree. But it was David's son who would sit on his throne. Not merely just in the Middle East, not just around this area of Jerusalem, but in heaven. That you see here at the close, this, there's this, this close of what happens here. It's the close of the chapter of Second Samuel, but it, it leaves so much more. The story yet not yet finished. Waiting for David's son to be able to come. To sit on that throne forever. Where he would rule righteously. He would just, justly, judge justly, walk humbly, give graciously, showing mercy. And here you see that shadow of Christ in this passage. Of what is to come. Christ who is to come, who has come. Jesus, the son of David, the root of Jesse, the one who comes to make a sacrifice for us as our prophet, priest, and king. That sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God for all of his people. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.